Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 13. Uh, Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. We have a lot of things to cover this morning, but I believe the Holy Spirit has something to say to all of us today. So let's stand once again as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark, Now Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to him, can the, can, the, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away from the new from the old and the and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for new, fresh wineskins. You may be seated. How many of you love to eat? You got to eat. Say, who do you think you are? You can't get far unless you eat. We live in a world of foodies. Some of you are foodies. We watch television shows about people cooking food. And then we'll watch other shows about people eating food. Our celebrities are chefs. We spend thousands of dollars every year eating out. Collier County has over a thousand restaurants, but only two Chick-fil-A's in Naples area, in the Naples proper area. <laughs> the average meal is $22 a person. We spend so much money, mental energy, effort on eating. I mean, how many of you, once you eat breakfast, you think about lunch? 
And once you have eaten lunch, you think about what you're going to eat for dinner. And once you've eaten dinner, you think about ice cream. <laughs> Even right now, some of you are plotting and planning where you're going to eat after church. The Bible talks a lot about meals and food. One commentator said the Bible begins and ends with a meal. The first words of God to humans were an invitation to eat. The first conflict in the Bible is over a forbidden food. The last act of Jesus before his death was to share a meaning-laden feast with his disciples. And the final vision of the new world is a massive, joyful feast. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus lived, and he enjoyed eating, and he enjoyed eating with people. He, he loved eating with people. As a matter of fact, uh, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, he, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. I mean, Jesus and his disciples ate so much that they called him a glutton and a drunker. Now, we know that Jesus was neither a glutton nor a drunk, but yet he loved to eat with people. And the excess of food was really a picture of the excess of his grace. I mean, every meal that Jesus ate with others was a happy meal. And it was a picture of what his grace can do. Well, here we read two stories, and these two stories center around food and eating and drinking. And Mark, Mark will do this throughout his gospel. He will link common themes together with stories that overlap. Next week, we're going to see this as well. And, and, and Pastor Justin, who did a tremendous job last week, spoke about the healing of the paralytic. And, and in that moment, when Jesus healed the paralytic, he did more than just heal him of a physical condition. He relieved him of his spiritual problem, which is sin. And here we saw that Jesus had the authority to forgive sin. And, and the Pharisees got it right. Only God can forgive sin. And so what we're going to see is that from that point forward, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to now challenge the authority of Jesus. They're going to question him. They're going to confront him. And it's going to go from animus within to open hostility outward so that finally they're going to plot to kill Jesus. And so as we look at these two stories, uh, we see the very heart of Jesus. Both stories that we just talked about show us his love and grace for people who don't deserve it. And I don't know about you, but I don't deserve the love of Jesus. Do you? I don't. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus loves the least likely, and he calls them to a, total, a totally new life in him. And when you eat with Jesus, you're never the same. So let's just unpack this. We have a lot to uncover what I want you to see, number one, is that Jesus loves the least likely. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. Uh, he went outside of Peter's house. He's in the city of Capernaum. Uh, Jesus started in the wilderness by himself, and now he has a steady stream of people that are following him. Jesus has done miracles. Uh, there was a breakthrough that happened in Peter's house. And now the following has gotten larger than what Peter's house can contain. And so Jesus has now gone to open air teaching. He is teaching what Mark 1.15 says, the kingdom of God, the gospel of God, repent and believe. And so as Jesus is probably on the outskirts of town, uh, where it's more open, the more fields are. He, he's, he's by via Morris, which is the way of the sea, and then the, uh, the King's Highway. And there's that intersection that takes place in Capernaum. And 
normally at these ex- intersections of, of great places, uh, there's tax booths. And so there's toll booths. Have you ever gone by a toll booth? And maybe you've worked in a toll booth. That, that would be an interesting job. I wouldn't necessarily want it, but it would be an interesting job. Well, here a guy named Levi is sitting in a tax booth. Now, this isn't where we get Levi's jeans, but this is the gospel writer named Matthew. And uh, Matthew was doing his job. He was collecting taxes. Now, there were three kinds of taxes in Matthew's day uh, that was collected for the the empire of Rome. There was a land tax, which was 10% of your harvest was directly given to Rome. So 10%. Then there was a poll tax, a census tax. It was a, a denarius, a, a day's wage that was sent annually. And then there were customs, duties that were taxes on, on goods and values. And so that's what Levi was doing. He, he was at this major intersection, which was the dividing line actually between kind of two districts. There was, uh, there was Herod Phillips district, which was in the Golan Heights in the northern part. Then there was Herod Antipas's uh, district, which was in the Galilee. And then there, the other brother, uh, Herod Archelaus, who had Judea. And here Levi was, was taxing people. And, 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 and Rome would, would farm out taxing to the locals. And so Rome stopped taxing around 30 BC. And they would go through these conglomerates, these locals who were almost like investment firms. And these investment firms would, would bid out to Rome to, to get the territory of taking taxes. And how these investment firms made their money is they would charge the taxes for Rome, and then they would charge a service fee on top of it. I mean, have you ever like got a ticket from Ticketmaster, and you're all excited? You you got a front row seat, and then you look and you're at checkout, and then there's a service fee of like eighty bucks. Well, well, that's kind of what's happening here, except the tax collector who was a part of this investment group uh, had no regulations and the authority of Rome behind them. And so they would, you would come to them and with whatever goods or whatever you have, or they would assess your goods and say, they would, they would be the ones that give the value. And so the value may be like $10 and say, no, I think that's really $100. And so they would then give, uh, say that we want a certain percentage of that. And, and basically they were were the inverted Robin Hoods. Instead of uh, stealing from the rich to give to the poor, they were stealing from the poor and making themselves rich. And uh, no one could stop them. They had the power of Rome. And so what made this, an inter- what makes this a really interesting story is that Jesus is going to call probably one of the most hated men in Israel. I mean, if you work for the IRS, you don't tell anybody, right? Well, here... The tax collectors are the, they are Israel's notorious. As a matter of fact, in the Mishnah, which was written around 200 AD, but it contains collections of sayings from rabbis that date back to Jesus's day. The Mishnah talks about the three worst groups of the the three worst groups of people in Israel. There were uh, the robbers, the thieves, and the tax collectors. The rabbis said in Jesus's day that it was righteous to lie and to deceive a tax collector. They were considered unclean. They were enemies of Israel, enemies of God. They, they were not allowed to testify in court. Their house was ceremonially unclean. And so Jesus looks at Levi and he says, follow me. Now, I'm sure that Peter, James, and John and Andrew were seeing what Jesus was doing, and they were probably going nuts. Uh, 
because they knew who this guy was. And, and I want you to also understand that rabbis in that day did not invite people to follow them. They, they had people that begged to be a follower of them. But here Jesus, he goes to Levi. He initiates the relationship with Levi. He seeks Levi, even though Levi wasn't seeking them. And so here Jesus says, follow me. The same command he gave to those four fishermen, he gives to this now notorious tax collector. And I'm sure that if they, if you were there that day, those four fishermen, uh, there would maybe be a debate over what was more shocking. Was it more shocking that Jesus asked Matthew to follow him? Or was it more shocking that Matthew actually got up and followed him? Because what we see here is that he leaves his tax booth. He, he makes no excuses. There is just simple repentance and faith. He repents of his old life and trusts in Jesus for his new life. Luke chapter 5, 28 says that he left everything. He walked away from it all. He walked away from his career, from his future, from everything, because he understood that to follow Jesus meant that he had to choose Jesus over everything. A friend of mine who is a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in the country of Tanzania, talks about a time he went to a village uh, where there was a church and there was predominantly Muslim village. And he, here in, in this church that he was speaking at there, he was sharing the gospel and uh, the pastor of the church was translating. And, and two guys, two young men in their uh, early 20s heard this message from the missionary, the gospel, and they gave their lives to Jesus Christ and they surrendered their lives and then they went home. And early the next morning, like really, really early, they knocked on the door of the church and found the pastor and they had huge duffel bags on, the, on their backs. And the missionary heard about this and he said, well, what's going on? And the pastor says, well, these men are here because they're no longer welcome at home. And the missionary was like, really? Yeah, they're no longer welcome at home. And so they packed everything that they owned and came to the church to now follow Jesus. And the missionary was like, really? And he said, and the pastor said, yeah, they knew this. What happened when they made that decision and they did it anyway. And so here Matthew rises up and leaves it all. And so Jesus says, follow me. Matthew says, all right, Jesus, I've quit my job. <laughs> Where now? Jesus says, we're going to your house. We're going to have a dinner party. And so verse 15 says he reclined at table in Matthew's house. And, and I'm sure the disciples were freaking out because remember, they are kosher Jews. Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they were, they were Jewish people, and they knew that you could not go. It was not kosher. It was not clean to go to the house of a tax collector. And so here they all pile in. They probably knew that Levi was one of those guys that ripped them off. And so they show up to Matthew's house. They're eating dinner. And the Bible says that there were many tax collectors and sinners there. So these are people who did not live according to the legalistic rules of the Pharisees. This had to have been a strange guest list. Capernaum's notorious were there. There's probably a few former prostitutes, a gay guy, a drug dealer, an atheist, a couple of crackheads, a few meatheads, a Wiccan maybe was there, some ex-cons, some trackies, an abortion doctor, a trans person, 
<laughs> some misfits and some nut jobs. They were all there at the table. Everyone had an interesting story, but none of them went to church. And there they were. Could you imagine? It felt like a scene in Star Wars going to the bar. And yet the Bible says that about this group of people that many of them followed Jesus. The one thing you note about Jesus is that Jesus was popular among sinners. That doesn't mean he compromised. Jesus didn't lower his standards. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, all truth is relative. And so you live your truth. I'll live my truth. And we'll just all sing kumbaya. No, Jesus never watered down, never compromised. He always said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and believe the gospel. And these sinners were attracted to him like bugs to a light. And so this feast was a celebration it was a celebration of salvation, a new community. That's who they used to be, but here's who they now are. And so everything's great. It's a great dinner party. But then verse 16 happens. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, in Jesus's day, one of the big questions amongst the religious was who do you eat with? See, meals in Jesus' day were more than just social occasions. They defined peer groups. It's been said that to share a meal in Jesus' day is to share a life. It was a, a declaration of who was in and who was out and who was accepted and who wasn't accepted. And so the scribes of the Pharisees, these are the uber Pharisees, not the uber driving Pharisees, the uber, these were the extra Pharisees. You know, when we hear the word Pharisees, we kind of cringe. We think these are the enemies. I mean, there were four kind of religious groups in Jesus's day. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. The, uh, the Sadducees were kind of the liberal group. The Essenes were kind of the wacko group. And the Zealots were the political nationalists who really wanted to just blow up stuff. Then you have the Pharisees. Now, again, when we hear Pharisee, we think heresy, and we think that these are evil people, but they were actually the Bible-believing evangelical conservatives in Jesus' day. There was about 6,000 of them, 1% of the population in Israel. They were, if you really look at their theology, they were the closest religious group to Jesus. They had a high view of Scripture and a low view of humanity, and they were hyper-nationalistic. And they started out really good. I mean, Ezra, the scribe, kind of founded the Pharisees out of the exile period. And, and they had a heart for the holiness of God, but they had lost God's heart towards people. They had a passion for separation. They had a passion for holiness. And I think that's what's missing in the church today. But, but yet their agenda was all about getting people to keep the rules. They, they believed that if the nation of Israel would keep Torah, the 613 laws, just for one day, then this would usher in the Messiah. They weren't bad people. They just lost their vision for God's heart. They saw what happened. They saw the dinner party. They weren't invited. And so they go to Jesus' disciples. Notice they don't go to Jesus. They go to his disciples because people love to criticize indirectly. They would be good Baptists. They say, what is Jesus 
doing at this party? He's a renowned rabbi. He has now rendered himself ceremoniously unclean by being at a tax collector's house and eating with those people. See what the Pharisees, the Pharisees in Jesus's day were like middle schoolers. They made lunchtime a cruel way to exclude people. And so you were either in the clique or you were out of the clique. And it was, meals were used to exclude people, but Jesus is gonna use meals to include people. So in verse 17, when Jesus heard the griping of the uber Pharisees, he doesn't go around them and tell like, hey, Peter, tell them this. No, he goes straight to them. I love Jesus, don't you? Like people running their mouth about him. What does he do? He goes straight to them. And he quotes them a well-known proverb in that day. Now, this was a well-known. Like this, was, this wasn't something just Jesus made up extemporaneously. This is something that people knew. And that is this, is that those who are well, those who are healthy, have no need of a physician, only those who are sick. And so basically Jesus is saying this, what kind of doctor only goes around healthy people? Like you call your doctor, you're sick. And you call the doctor's office and you talk to the administrative assistant on the phone, the receptionist, and you say, hey, I need to have an appointment with Dr. So-and-so and I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. I'm, I'm just struggling. I need an appointment immediately. And the receptionist says to you, I'm sorry, the doctor only sees healthy people. I mean, a doctor that really only sees healthy people is not a good doctor at all. It's a horrible doctor. And so Jesus says here, I have not come for the righteous. I've come for the unrighteous. I didn't come for those who are healthy. I came for those who are sick. I didn't come for those who have it all figured out. I came for the mess ups, the, the left south and the sin sick. And here's the truth. Sadly, those who think that they are not sick were the sickest of all. See, Jesus came for the sick. So Jesus here is, is, is doing this meal on purpose. You know, Jesus is more concerned about holiness than any of us are. And yet Jesus never apologizes for eating with this group of people. Why? Because Jesus is the true and only doctor who took on the sickness of his patients to make his patients healthy. Think about that. See, Jesus could not do the work of Savior unless he's around people who need to be saved. He loves the least likely. Now, what's, what, what do we do with this? I mean, how do we think through this? Well, here's the question we need to all ask ourselves. What sort of people do we not want in our church? Like, if you were to make a list, who would you exclude and you're saying, well, preacher, no, I mean, we, we love everybody. Did you not see the sign of you're loved here? Like, we love everybody. We want everybody. And we say that verbally, but do we really mean it in our hearts? Or is there a little group? Like, you know, like, you know, preacher, I, I, I love everybody, but man, there's just a certain group of people I just don't really want to see in our church. Like, if we had a segment of those people, I would be uncomfortable. Like, I don't really want them around my kids. So like, hey, if they start coming here, then we need to change our kids' ministry to have a group for those kids and then our kids because we got to keep our kids sanitary. And so we, in our own hearts, you know, we don't really want people that don't vote like us. <laughs> I'm like, who'd you vote for? I mean, like, oh, really? You voted for them? You're out. We don't want people that don't dress like us or 
parent like us or talk like us or live like us or messy like us because many of us, we don't want to see our Christian bubble popped. But let's be honest. Those are the very ones that we must go after. And those are the very ones we must love on because Jesus came for those people. Because you know what? We are those people. See, this is not the, you've heard me say this before, right? This is not the country club church. This church isn't a country club. This isn't the good ship lollipop. This isn't a cruise ship. This is a hospital for sin sick people. And the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there is none in this room so bad you can't be saved. And there's none in this room too good. You don't need to be saved. Everybody needs the one person who can save everybody. Jesus. Jesus loves the least likely. But then he doesn't just love them. He doesn't just eat with them, but he wants something more for them. And God wants something more for you. And that's the second little story. And that is this, is that Jesus calls us to a totally new life in him. You'll see in verse 18 that after this little episode here, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees, they were, they were fasting. So the, let me just give you a little more background here. There were three pillars to the religious, uh, the, to the Jewish religion. The three pillars of the Jewish religion are prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Notice Jesus attacks or addresses all three in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. But the Bible only commanded that they fast once a year. Now, later on, after the temple is destroyed, after uh, the Babylonian captivity, Zechariah the prophet does say that there are four other fast days that should be days of mourning as they're longing for the temple to be rebuilt and they're longing for God to come back. And so at the most, there were five days of fasting that were called by the Torah and yet, what are, what are the Pharisees doing? They're fasting 104 days. So one thing it tells us is that they were probably skinny. <laughs> they were skinny. And so they wanted to be holier. I mean, if, if the Bible says you're only supposed to do it five times, I'm going to do 104 times. And so the people came to Jesus and they said, you know what? The Pharisees fast, the disciples of John's fast. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Like, have you ever, like, like, it seems inconsistent. Like, it's like a, you're a good preacher, but you don't give any money to the church. You're, you're a good speaker, but you don't really attend a church. You don't really attend a small group. It seems very contradictory. It's really hard, Jesus, for us to take you seriously if your disciples and you don't even do the basics. And so Jesus responds. He says, can the, can the wedding guest fast while the groom is with him? So weddings in Jesus' day were big events. They were, if you were a virgin getting married, there would be a seven-day feast. So it would be a big party of food and, and feasting and celebrations for seven days. And so it's like a, an unlimited golden corral buffet on steroids with a lot of hummus. 
and you would get up in the morning and you would eat and you would drink until your heart and your belly were content. And then you would go to bed, come back and rinse and repeat for seven days. Nobody fasts at a wedding. Now that might save some money. Maybe that's what we'll think about doing at my kids' wedding. So you know what? And I really think that we shouldn't have no food at your wedding. Right? Some of you are like, Pastor, you just, I've been praying about my daughter's wedding and the Lord just spoke through you. Thank you. No. <laughs> no one fasts at a wedding. It's like not having cake at a wedding. Like, what's the purpose of getting married if you don't have cake? Right? That's the only reason I do weddings is to eat cake. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the bridegroom. We're at the wedding. My presence is here. And because I'm here, we don't fast, we feast. You know, Jesus was a walking party. And so what he's essentially saying this, let's kind of strip this around and let's get to the really heart of what he's saying. He's saying, listen, guys, the reason why you fast is because you are longing for God to send his Messiah here. The reason you fast is because the temple that was destroyed, you want to be rebuilt. The reason you fast is because you're not able to do what you want to do. The reason you're fasting is you're longing for all of this evil to go away. Well, here's the good news. I'm here. And everything you've been fasting for and everything you've been praying about is wrapped up in me. See, 500 years before Jesus came, Zechariah the prophet predicted that there would be a day in which the fasts of mourning and repentance would be turned to feasting and joy. Zechariah 8, 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. The prophet is saying there's coming a day that fasting will turn to feasting, that mourning will turn to joy. And so then Jesus gives two more word pictures. He talks about an unshrunk cloth and wineskin. Now, the unshrunk cloth, I think we can kind of grasp. Now, in our day, if you have a rip or a tear in your jeans, you don't patch it. They're actually holy jeans. As a matter of fact, there are some stores, the holier the jean, the more money you pay. It's getting to the point now where there's like this much fabric, the less fabric you have, the more expensive it is, right? Because we're not going to, nobody, how many kids you see going to school with a patch? Now, back in my day, when we had wrestler jeans, what are wrestlers? Those are the ones you got at Walmart. Now, I know some of y'all aren't used to shopping at Walmart, but huh, I did. And so you get a hole. I mean, that was a big deal. So you would go and you would, you, your mom would find this patch and you, anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, anybody else? You didn't always live in Naples. Come on. <laughs> and so in Jesus's day, if you had a tear or a hole in your jeans, your jeans were already washed. And so when fabric, when 100% cotton gets washed, it, 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 it contracts and it does its thing. Well, if you put a new patch of 100% cotton that's not been pre-shrunk on the hole 
what happens is it's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to contract. And when it contracts, it's going to rip another hole. So Jesus says nobody puts a new unshrunk patch of cloth on a hole of an old garment, because if you do, it'll rip it apart. But then he talks about another one, wineskin. And he says, you don't put new wine in old wineskin. Now you're like, all right, well, I got the patch part, but I don't get the wineskin part. So back in that day, they didn't have jugs like we have jugs. They didn't have glass bottles. They, they put their, they stored their wine in animal skins, uh, even stomachs of animals. That sounds really great, right? They would wash them once at least. And so they would sew these together. It was almost like a canteen. It'd be, you know, a skin of wine. And so what, what would happen is you put, you put the new wine in the, in the new wine skin. And then over time, the wine ferments, it stretches. And the, the wine skin is now old. It's been kind of stretched out. It's a little brittle. And so Jesus says, it's common knowledge that you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Why? Because new wine ferments, carbon dioxide emits, it expands the, the thing. And if you put new wine in an old wineskin, the thing's going to just fall apart. It's going to burst and you're going to have a mess. So those are the two stories. Now, you're like, what in the, what in the Sam Hill does have to do with anything? Well, I'm glad you asked. What Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees and these people asking questions is this. All of your thinking is old wineskin thinking. All of every category in your mind is old garment thinking. And God, through me, is up to something new. And this new thing is not like the old thing. The, the new thing is not the old wineskin of the Pharisees. The old wineskin of the Pharisees is moralistic, legalistic, and cruel. No, no, the new wine is fresh, creative, life-giving, and sweet. And this new thing, this new wine that God is doing, this new patch that God is doing is going to need to create new categories in your mind than you've ever had before because God wants to do something new. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Here's why. The, so I'm going to kind of go through a lot of different things here. So just stay with me. I promise you this is somewhat organized in my head. The natural default mode of humanity is that we must save ourselves. And so the natural default mode, I mean, you're pretty much born hardwired this way, is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The good people are in, the bad people are out. And so the old way of thinking is I gotta be good. I gotta be good. And if I'm good, then I'm good. And so that's the old way of thinking. That's the sinful way of thinking. That's that. So that's one side. But here's another way of thinking. You, okay, you're, I'm past that. I understand the gospel. But here's something else. A lot of people in the church say, I want God to do something new. I want God to send revival. I want God's Holy Spirit to come down on our church. And they want, they want new wine. They, they want something new. And yet, 
they don't. <laughs> because they want the excitement of revival, but they don't want the change of revival. <laughs> because they're comfortable in their old wineskins. I mean, they've been, they've been in these old wineskins for years. But here's the thing, for God to bring new wine, there's gotta be a new wineskin. There's gotta be some change. There's gonna be some, some change from what's comfortable. And so we often want God to do a new thing in our life, but only to the point where we like it. But God wants to do a totally new thing. And, and listen, we should want God's glory and God's blessing more than our preferences, our comfort, and our traditions. So Jesus said, listen, guys, you're coming in and you think that, that I'm kind of basically come in to just revamp the old system. I didn't come to revamp the old system. I came to bring in a new operating system. Then what do we do with the garment patch? Well, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not just a life hack. I'm not just a software patch. I mean, how many of you on your phones, like you, you get this thing, you've got to update your phone and you update it and you're now, your phone is now far worse than it was before the update, right? Can I get a witness on that? Like this new iPhone came out. I think the reason that they do the software updates is so it destroys your phone. So you got to get a new one. Anyone else? Preach, right? As a matter of fact, we're taking up an offering right now so I can get a new phone. <laughs> so here's what he's saying. Jesus is not a garment patch Jesus. He's not just an add-on. He's not just some little add-on in your life. You know, some people, I got a hole in my life. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I'm depressed. And I, I, I think if I just add a little Jesus in my life, I'll be better. And so what people do is they're going through a tough time. They're going through a crisis. They'll start coming to church and they say, you know what? I like this Jesus thing. Me and Jesus, we, we got a good thing going on. And I'm going to add Jesus into my life. But what happens is you add Jesus in your life and for a little while you're better. But then before long, you don't want to change and he just tears away. And you're life is now broken even more than it was before. Why? Because you don't just try Jesus to see if he works. <laughs> People say, well, I tried Jesus. He didn't work. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> he was just a patch to get me through a tough patch. See, being a Christian is not just turning over a new leaf. Being a Christian is receiving a new life. It's not just trying Jesus on. You know, like Amazon has this thing now, you can buy clothes all you want and you can try it on. And if they don't fit, you can send it back and there's no blood, no foul. Jesus, Jesus isn't Amazon. He's not Amazon clothing. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You don't just order Jesus to see if he can fit you. No, you fit to Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. 
you Pharisees and you scribes, you're worried about the old operating system. You're trying to put new wine in old wineskins. And listen, the new wine's got to go in new wineskins. There's got to be a new category. And listen, I'm not a garment patch. You don't just add me in thinking I can fix your problem today because what'll happen is I will tear your life apart. But you know, here's something I love about this whole thing is we're ending because I got to stop. The one thing I love about Jesus, and this is hopefully going to help everyone in this room and those watching online is this. Jesus does not worry about who you once were. I mean, not once in this story did Jesus at that table say, oh, you're a crackhead. <laughs> I can't sit with you. No, he didn't. He doesn't worry about who he only cares about what he's making you to be. Jesus eats with sinners because he knew what he can do with their life. Jesus knew that his grace could bring in a new wine and a totally new life. How is it possible? How can Jesus do this? He kind of gives us a glimpse of it in verse 20. He says that there's coming a day when the bridegroom is taken away from them, that they will fast. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that, but he's talking about his crucifixion and his ascension. See, Jesus knew from the very beginning he had to die. One commentator said that Jesus got himself killed because of who he ate with. See, when Jesus eats with Levi and the other tax collectors and sinners, he's drawing a line in the sand, sand and he's making it clear that, that he has come for the losers. He has come for the people on the margins. He's come for people who have made a mess of their lives. He's come for the ordinary and the flawed and the failures. And the only people that Jesus leaves out are those who don't think they need him. Because the only way that Jesus can eat with sinners without destroying sinners is that he will have to die in the place of sinners. See, Jesus paid the cost so that we can feast with him. See, it doesn't matter who you are. Jesus doesn't come to just repackage the old you. Jesus has come to change your life forever. That's why we get on our knees and sing holy. Because we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you can just come to Jesus. You can just come just as you are. Because he doesn't worry about who you once were. He knows what he's going to make you to be. Levi, the tax collector, wrote the book of Matthew. How many countless millions of people have been saved by the grace of Jesus through the gospel of Matthew? It is no secret what God can do, what he's done for others. He'll do for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that's in this room. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would, would do a work that you'd call sinners to yourself. Father, I pray that you would just move in a mighty way. 
And whoever's in this room that doesn't know you as Savior God, would today be the day that they say, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. Because I know you're calling right now. Lord, thank you for saving sinners, sinners like me. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing about Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.